HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this half-hour culinary journey of history. And, you know, we've been doing several shows about um, old kitchens and old implements and old bowls and old stoves. And it's interesting because I was thinking about how we actually equip and use our kitchens today, if we even use them at all has changed dramatically over the past 50 or 60 years, and that's to say nothing of how it's changed over the past couple of centuries, we think nothing of setting a timer to have coffee in the morning. I know I do. (laughs) Or punching a button to bake a fresh loaf of bread. Or flicking a switch to chop vegetables or puree a soup. New technology eases the kitchen chores, and yet Cooks have been chopping and pureeing and and mixing and baking and molding long before these fancy electronics were invented. Few of us would would probably even know what some of these strange-looking old implements are that we see at flea markets or museums or what they were used for. And in their day, these things were also rather new inventions to make life easier for people. And, you know, speed up up the cooking chores, really, and, and, and make our, you know, get things closer into the pot to cook and far cry from hacking or crushing with a stone as cavemen did so even those implements were you know quite inventive and in the context of all these implements they are all part of not just culinary history but of a larger social history as we've evolved in our respective roles my guest today knows and can identify and collects such objects in the kitchen that are rather obscure He's Harry Rosenblum, who together with his wife Taylor owns the very modern Brooklyn Kitchen, a cookware shop extraordinaire. Welcome, Harry. Hi, Linda. What what came first, the kitchenware store or this? I mean, you have an incredible collection of antique 
implements and cookware. Which came first, the modern cookware store or the old cookware? Uh, the old cookware came first. I grew up in a family of collectors. My father collects firefighting uh, antiques, uh, including a couple of vintage vehicles, 1920s fire engines. I spent the greater part of my childhood following him around uh, flea markets and sort of grew up around antiques. I worked in an antique store when I was in high school and college and spent a lot of time just in, immersed in old stuff. And that was in the days before the internet. So, you know, we were waiting for people to come into the antique store, which was not very many. Yeah. So I spent, you know, months and months of my life reading old books, reading old magazines, looking at old advertisements. And so my interest in antiques came first. And then as I got older and as I started to cook on my own and my wife and I started to settle down, I've started to amass um, both useful and sometimes no longer useful vintage kitchen tools. And so bears. when so the, the actual then focus on the kitchen implements, the antique kitchen implements, was that from the get-go, or, or no, did that from, evolve? I'd always sort of, you know, I'd pick up things here or there, an old cast iron skillet and things like that, but I didn't really have an interest in collecting them and, and sort of searching out um, interesting variations until we started the Brooklyn Kitchen. The original uh-huh. Brooklyn Kitchen was opened in 2006, so that really was what was the catalyst for me to start really looking at these things and to, you know, start having an interest in figuring out items that might be useful now that used to be manufactured that aren't any manufactured any longer things that are obsolete um, and then just the you know myriad variations that these different tools came in well how what one of the questions that i had um is how did you where did you go to do the research to find out what these things were and what period they came from so initially if you know when i would find something i mean the very first item that i ever Ah, he's sort got of, a box of goodies here with him. The very him. <laughs> first item that I ever picked up and thought that this was really cool and that maybe I should start seeking these things out um, is what turns out to what looks like a normal metal spatula. And when you flick, what is that it, with a with a um, bakelite handle? It's or? actually it's a painted wood handle. Painted I have seen handle. versions of uh-huh. them with bakelite. Um, but when you flick a lever on the handle, the spatula blade flips in three. And, and do makes you know it how wonderfully useful that is? <laughs> it's a fantastic tool. It has a really nice motion to it, and it is it's very well constructed. And so that was the first thing that I ever purchased that I sort of thought maybe I should collect and look for these weird things and how neat it was. That well, if no one's ever seen this, it, it's beautiful it's like a regular spatula metal spatula long and narrow and then you just pull this lever back and it turns like a fan like a exactly. know, paper fan that you would use yeah. and it turns into this nice big fat thing so if you have a big i'm thinking a nice piece of skate wing and you could just sure. turn the whole thing Absolutely. right over but they still make something like this they do they, not? they do still make something like that they, whoever they yes. are. well <laughs> it, it is sort of a they the 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 one that's currently available and we do have them for sale at the brooklyn kitchen because i thought it was worthwhile to be selling the modern version Free one advertising of my folks <laughs> favorite old implements uh unfortunately it's made in in it, it is not as well manufactured as the antique one so it's much looser it feels very cheap and it yeah. is manufactured yeah, in china thing, at a cheaper material beautifully that's that's a tight that's a nice tight pull but yeah. yet not hard to open right so you know you're going to hold that piece of you yeah. know, fish or and the more modern one is you know essentially visually the same one it is based on the same patent but it is not you know not nearly as nice okay as now you mentioned one. patent and i was saying where do you go to research these yep. things so where do you go all right, the first, this is the first item you so bought. So this was the first item right. I bought. And when I first purchased this item, um, 
Google patents didn't exist and there was not a good resource online. <laughs> Google, yeah, Google's. Yeah. So, Certainly um, not when that existed. Absolutely. And and so I started to try and do research this uh, on it. It was made by a company called Corridon in New York City. It says that on the piece. So that was a place that I started. It also has a patent number. I didn't follow it all the way through to research the patent with the U.S. Patent Office. Um, years later, when Google patents came out, I mean, it's an incredible resource now that you can go online and punch in a patent number off of an old antique object and you can pull up the patent. That's really it. that's really useful and good to know. However, the U.S. patents did not come into play until quite late. So, what do you do before that? Yeah. So, before that, um, and when what, can you you know what what is the period uh, when the patent office was well the, first, the the patent office was originally established in 1790, but it was really established in the way we understand it now in 1836. Hmm. So, the in the modern age, so it was of a patents, sketchy period there. Until yeah, like it, was, it was 1836. 1836, and then you know, but but it also was kind of you know it was a slow buildup. Um, Patent, you know, in modern days, patent number one, even though it was originally 1790, was issued in 1836. By 1849, there were 6,000 patents. So, and they ran at about a thousand a year at that point. So that's about three a day. And this, the, is, and this is not just kitchen implements. This is for everything. Yeah, this is, this everything, is everything, everything being States, manufactured, right. and you know, and, and any idea that someone warranted, you know, trying to get a patent on. By the time you reach 1890, you're up to 25,000 a year. Wow. So with the Industrial Revolution That's coming, more than exponential. I mean, that, yeah. that growth is really, yeah. you know, incredible. And, you know, I mean, so people were patenting items because it did two things. It gave them uh, stability in the marketplace so that they were the only person who was allowed to either manufacture that themselves originally or mm-hmm. then what it became is a monetization of ideas. So you could then patent this object. I mean, this spatula, I have the patent for it. It was patented by a couple of people in California in 1935. But this was manufactured by a company in New York City who I'm sure paid a licensing fee because this is marked with the patent number to be able to manufacture this device. So what it then became is you could have ideas that became valuable. Right. Yeah. And there are, well, well, another topic. There are other stories that aren't so nice on the patent, on patents and what people do and buy them and shelve them so they can make their product be the only competitor. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing about patents, too, at least the way that the law is set up in the United States, is that the idea is that you are, you know, you are trading as an inventor having a patent and having, um, you know, you're being able to own the marketplace for a period of time with your idea, but you also then have to share it because that information is then available to everyone else. That's right. So the idea in part was to spur innovation so that everyone could see what everybody else was working on and then take it and improve upon it. Yeah. So if it's, if they actually could make a better product without stealing, you know, the right. initial idea, but, um, well, okay. So that was when patents existed. You have a couple of really other some really old other items here yes. that I'm sure don't have patents. Now, how did you find out what some of these things were? A lot of it just has to do with uh, attempting to do actual research, not on the Internet, the way that people think of research now, but looking through old books, um, looking at old advertisements, mm-hmm. and coming across these things. And that was sort of, I feel like, you know, growing up working at the antique store, that gave me you know, a lot of that information because I spent hours just pouring through advertisements and pouring through. Well, and advertisements books. are good. One of, um, you know, in culinary history, one of the problems is, you know, cooking was not relegated to the higher levels of scholarly, you know, research. And so a lot of things weren't saved. A sure. lot of the ephemera was not saved. You cannot find the advertisements or the 
or the books, even cookbooks, I mean, didn't have, they were, they were pamphlets often. They didn't have mm-hmm. the money to print pictures, so you don't know what objects were being used. Sure. So that, that's a real, you had a lot of uh, sleuthing to do. On yeah, I mean, it, it, and so with some of the items like the spatula, I originally started looking for the company to find out when they were in existence and mm-hmm. when they were operating. And, you know, was able to find out a little bit of information about when it may have come about. And now I know that it was patented in 1935. The patent clearly was, you know, licensed to this company. So this spatula was probably made sometime before World War yeah. II. So that's not, that's old, yeah. but that's... <clears throat> That's not that old. No, it's not that old. <laughs> um, I see this other item. Tell me, let's let's describe this and and uh, to our listeners. And let me guess and see if I can find out what it's for. So right. this is a. It's a, cast iron. It's first cast of all. iron. Um, it is a. It is a press. It has oh, a turning it, screw at the top. Okay. That then presses a plate that looks. To, it's about the size of a modern day large lemon uh, into a tinned cast iron cup with a little pour spout with a little pour spout so it's a lemon squeezer you would think that it is and it could be definitely used for that today this item actually is a lot easier it's easier to find out what it is it is harder to do research on it is actually marked on the item what it's for it's cast into the iron it's and it says columbia meat juice press Ooh. So that juice uh, for meat. <laughs> it, it was it was made for juicing meat. In the 19th century, uh, it was believed that most of the nutrients contained in meats was actually in the liquid that could be removed from those meats. And it also was a time when dental hygiene was not what it is today. And so what you ended up with was a number of people who couldn't chew. chew. Yeah. And so the idea behind this object was that you would take the meat that had been cooked and you would press all of the juice out and oh, you could yum. pour it for someone who was invalid <laughs> and who could no longer chew the meat and that they would then be able to receive nutrients in that way. So this is an item that I find fascinating for its specificity and it is so well constructed. It's made of cast iron. It will you know, but, outlast yeah, no, all of us and yeah. yet there's not I mean you could use it today to juice lemons but the the fact that you yeah, have looks, a screw it looks like it would do a, a nice job on, on sure. lemons yeah but the fact that you are you know a lemon you can juice fairly easily with hand pressure and this object is made to really apply an incredible amount of pressure using the cast iron screw to press yeah. everything and, out and of it's meat. pretty uh, it's not very big it's only about um, eight nine inches tall and a big long screw that ends in a t-bar at the top which is your lever to yep. screw it down just like like any old press you would see you just sure. screw and screw and screw down um, and yeah, and that plate looks like a little lemon slice. So, did you, were you able to date this? Were you able to find out research of like about when? Eighteen eighties. Oh, eighteen eighties. I'm 1880s. sorry. Yeah, is it on there? Uh, it's on the tag that I have on there. But the, yeah, oh, it is. It's an eighteen eighties um, item. I was able to find some references in a medical manual to this being a recommended object that people would use to take care of invalid relatives. Of all things, yeah, to find out that they're you know. Well, I know you. Um, I had Joel Schiff on the show not long ago, who is a an avid cast iron collector, and we talked a lot about some of the uses of the old cast iron. But a lot of your pieces are more household mm-hmm. cooking utensils, you know, like you said, spatula, spoons, sure. um, cookie cutters. We discussed before the show you have this six-sided cookie cutter, which I'm sure a lot of people probably have or their mothers or grandmothers had it in their kitchen because this, it's a it's a round, like a ball, but open, cut open out of tin, and it's all six different shapes of cookies. So you don't have to have each individual cookie cutter. You can just turn it around. But um, now you tell me, and I thought they were still manufactured today. 
Yeah, unfortunately, the company that was manufacturing them, we used to carry them in the store, has ceased manufacturing them, which I think is too bad. I think it's a fantastic. And we're talking device. only about six months ago, right? Yeah, I mean, in, like, in the last six months. Yeah, because that's an item it. I've seen. I've, I've seen in stores and on you know in kitchens. Yeah, and one of the things for me with my collection is I find it very interesting to look at items that were made in the past that are still useful and still made today. And this was a prime example, except that they've now stopped manufacturing yeah. it. But it was, I mean, it's a great item. They can because, make more money selling individual cookie cutters. Right. And, and, and I would have to assume that that's it. And, and that's one of the things, actually, that if you look at a lot of these devices and if you look at the fact that things like the spatula are now made to such poor quality, they're not really worth buying. And manufacturing expense, I think, is really the big thing mm. that, that goes into a lot of, you know, the, the reason that things like this end up being discontinued is that they were having to figure out a way to attach these six cookie cutters, but now they can just sell them as six separates well is there anything any implements in particular you can think of that just have not been improved because they're just so they're so perfect that there was no reason to improve upon them well i think that the um one of the things that uh i have in my collection and it's by no means uh encyclopedic but is a number of egg beaters yeah and egg beaters are are something that you know pretty much have not really been improved upon for you know Probably a hundred and. Are you talking about the rotary ones years. with the gear wheel that catches it, spins? Around. As kids, we all love to play with. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those are so much fun. There's single ones. There's double ones. There are singles. There, yeah. There's doubles. I have some. Oh, you've got a you've got a bunch here. Oh, and with colored handles. I have some variations that now, sort wait a of minute, operate that's in different not, ways. Is, now that's not an. All right, this he's showing me now one that has not your traditional. Um, spoked you know spiral ball whisk on the bottom but this has two discs um with different cutouts so what this was this used for eggs or something this was used for eggs or for whipping the it actually this one is interesting because it has a lot of information on it it was called the whip it uh it is it is on the handle itself it is called the whip it uh cream and egg whip manufactured by the duro metal products company in chicago now this i can see would give a real nice volume to whipped cream because you're just forcing it through this yep these discs and the handle's gorgeous yeah the handle is a beautiful painted it's a like a swirled painted wood finish usually you find these old implements and i'm sure a lot of people have seen them in Again, at flea markets or in their grandmother's kitchens. Um, great-grandmother at this point, I suppose, um, with the wooden handles. But mostly, it's, they're all chipped. The paint's all chipped apart. And they're either chipped or they're just plain wood at this point, which is, which is beautiful. Which is but beautiful. they mostly they would have been painted. painted. And that one, the paint is perfect and in perfect condition. And then I have a one-handed. That's great. One that operates by a geared just system, a, geared, a, a geared lever. An egg beater that just pushes. You just push the lever in, and the gears hit the, uh, the whisks, and they spin around. I think egg beaters are a perfect example because they really haven't changed technologically. Yeah, but how many people actually have those in their kitchens today? I would say a fair number either have them as leftovers. I would but say we sell, no. we sell you, you some. sell them in, in your modern store. Yeah, I not was, a ton. I would say but. very few because you know I think just the plain ball whisk has has re, not replaced it because that was always around from you know from ancient not ancient history but or certainly with Karim Antoine Karim I mean from sure. the you know let's say the the 17 1800s has mm-hmm. been around um, I think people are more likely to have that in their kitchen and not uh, one of these mechanical egg beaters you know why because yeah. also they have the the electric mixer right? yes the electric mixer certainly <laughs> that replaced uh, it did right? replace it but as far as technologically speaking you know all of these egg beaters are the same but all had ended up with different patents 
So ah. because they accomplished the they movement in a different way. They changed a little item. And so to me, it's a very interesting thing because what it meant is that all of these companies could then market an egg beater and sell it in the market because they had a patent on a different method for moving the whips at the end, but it was not necessarily accomplishing or technologically advancing the activity of beating eggs Mm -hmm. or of whipping cream. Well, we're going to talk about some more of these items when we come back from a short break, and, and maybe you'll have a couple stumpers for me. This is Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio with a message about Cookout NYC. Cookout NYC is the pinnacle event in July Good Beer Month. Cookout NYC will exclusively showcase the best of New York City breweries featuring limited edition beers and nationally renowned and award-winning chefs. A portion of the proceeds will benefit Just Foods Farm School. Community partners include Earth Matters, Teen Battle Chef, and the Kingsbury Community College Culinary Program. Check out cookoutnyc.com, co-hosted by Dixon's Meats, Six Point Craft Ales, Mama O's Kimchi, The Good Beer Seal, and radio hosts from Heritage Radio Network. Cookout NYC is the city's ultimate outdoor cooking and country fair event July 10th from 11.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Governor's Island. We are back on A Taste of the Past, talking to Harry Rosenblum of Brooklyn Kitchen. And he is, the, the big secret is he is an avid collector of antique cooking implements, vintage and antique cooking implements. And I am, I am intrigued because I love this stuff. Uh, but we were talking about which antique implements really haven't changed much because there's not a whole lot to improve upon. You know, it goes even further than that, I think. Um, some of these modern utensils or and and uh, machines that we have not only supposedly ease the chore in the kitchen but they change the the outcome of some of the food they change the way we cook certainly but they change the way food is made and for instance um some items that uh, have been replaced you can make a you can make dough or and you know batters in an electric mixer or in a food processor but i will still make biscuits with a flour cutter you know the the mm-hmm. butter the the um, for those of you who might not be familiar it has a, f- a flat handle and then the um, series of spokes like a half moon on the bottom and that's the best way to mix the flour in or in a pinch if I'm somewhere that, where they don't have one I'll just use two dinner knives sure and and cut the flour the, the fat into the dough you just can't make muffins in an elect with an electric mixer either you have to beat them in a in a big 
preferably earthenware bowl with a wooden spoon. I mean, it just makes them turn out better. I don't know. Um, maybe it's me, but I think, you know, we have a tendency to, to overbeat, over, you know, overprocess, and then the breads, and, and I'm thinking particularly baked goods, come out, the texture's too fine. It's yeah, you too can dense. very, very easily overwork the flour, um, you know, when you're using something that's electric because you don't have that control over the actual texture of it because mm-hmm. you're not feeling it. Mm-hmm. And, and yet... Um, I still spend an inordinate, you know, with all these modern pieces of equipment I have, I still spend an inordinate amount of time <laughs> chopping and preparing. Uh, what What do you think is one of have has been one of the was an antique time saver that was really one of the better time savers? We were looking at the the potato ricer um, right before the break or right during the break. Now that hasn't changed at all, really. Right, a potato ricer still accomplishes its, you know, what it what it was originally intended to do. I have one here that was made in Brooklyn in the 1880s, and it is, you know, takes well cooked potatoes and turns them into a very very fine mash. And effectively, would this one works exactly the same as a modern one would? And there are very few things that can get the same texture with a potato as using something like a ricer, and it's going to mash the potato much faster. Than if you and and that was a wonderful invention in its day. I mean, that was, just think of the time saver that was for the, Absolutely. all that all that muscle power yeah. you had to use to beat those, you know, potatoes into yeah. a pulp. And yeah. now, you know, I mean, and then, I mean, this, you know, this is, this grater that I brought. Oh, that's uh, interesting. It an, looks like it's a, example. it's a wheel. It's a disc. Um, it's a disc that has five different. Like your regular box grater, but it's all flat. It's flat like a, a wheel. Yep. And it has five different gradations of grading from coarse to fine. Uh, also, this one was meant to be used as a strainer. You could put it over the edge of a saucepan and use the holes of the grater as a strainer. Oh, that's a good idea. Or put it in the bottom of a saucepan and use it as a steamer. So it's a really multifunctional object. Wow. Um, very simple, made of thin tinware. Yeah. I, um, think the, I think the box grater was a little bit of an improvement on that, though. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would think so. But the, the grater itself, I think, is a, is a good example of something that was created and, and is a real time saver. Right. Um, as far as, you know, finely shredding um, something. Mm-hmm. Um, in the... Uh, in some of the items, I mean, do you get inspirations for? Now you you own a modern cooking store, and in fact, uh, people who have been to, and I sadly to say I have not been into the store, but um, people who have been into the store, and I think it was even mentioned in the New York Times, even mentioned that the writer who had went and visited the store, are impressed by how knowledgeable the staff is, yourself included, in in the items that are there and what they are for, or finding an item for them. And obviously now we know the reason. It's because you you know the history behind these things. Are you inspired by some of these antique and vintage items for things that you might look for in the market? I think so. I mean, I I think one of the things that we really look for when trying to choose things that we feel like are, are important for the store is that they be functional. Um, and that they be something that is the you know the right tool for the job. One of the things that's very important to us is to find out what the customer really is doing and what they are you know sometimes someone trying will come to in, achieve right sure yeah. and and ask for a tool that is not actually the correct tool for what they're trying to accomplish. And so I think that that's a very important question to ask and to really find out what is being cooked or what is being baked. Oh, and I wonder what they're if really I'm using the wrong implements <laughs> when my food doesn't turn out. I'll know right. it's the wrong. I'll come and see Harry right. <laughs> but I think that you know we we try to be informed by things that we think are are functional um, from the past. And I think that at a certain point, you know, we're at a point in, in the modern age where the amount of time it takes to do things, of course, you know, everyone's looking for efficiency and looking to foreshorten things. But at a certain point, how much longer does it take you to beat an egg with a 
brand new egg beater or an electric egg beater than by hand with a fork, right. I mean, are you really saving time? Right. I mean, you know, if the manufacturer makes the claim that it's 50% faster and it cuts 10 minutes off your time, that's great. If it make, they make the claim that it's 50% faster and it cuts your time down from six seconds to three seconds. Now, wait a minute. You have to open that drawer and find that utensil. Exactly. <laughs> well, and the other thing is you have to have more storage space with sure. all these things. You know, in... You know, used to be a little bit more of an efficient kitchen in the old days. Yeah. Um, the Museum of Modern Art just had a, a wonderful exhibit um, on the Frankfurt Kitchen, and yeah. then brought in a lot of. You, you saw that too. I did, and, yeah, was, and they had wonderful um, items, implements, and objects from the 1800s, pre World War One items and posts, and how how it has managed to you know to cut time and make our lives more efficient sure. in the kitchen. Yes, <laughs> and and it also. I mean, you have to remember, it's all it, it is also market driven. So it is trying, you know, it is an industry that is in the business of selling things to people. So that's the other side of it. You mentioned that that beautiful potato ricer that you have that that from the 1800s would not be manufactured today because it's it's too expensive? Too complicated. I mean, this particular piece, it's made out of uh, at least two different types of material, if not three. So it's got cast iron. It has steel, and then there's the brazing and the solder in between. And it's made from no fewer than seven pieces hmm. that all would have had, you know, would have to be put together by hand still. I mean, it would right. be an object that would be so, in, you know... Labor-intensive. There, there right. could be an artisanal potato ricer producer, you know, starting up here in Brooklyn. You but the, the object itself would be so expensive that, unfortunately, I don't think it would have a place in the market. Oh, and I have... Three different versions, um, a metal one, it's tin, you know, it's light, um, an older, I don't want to say, not pewter, but it's a metal that's a, a heavy metal, and then, mm-hmm. of course, plastic. Right. And i got to tell you, the plastic one is, yeah. don't even bother, folks, don't, I mean, oh, I'm sorry if you sell them. <laughs> yeah. No, no, Go no. Harris no, no. Um, but there are some things that, that plastics have actually um, improved upon and, and done a good job. And I'm thinking of one, and you probably, I forget the name of the company, but I bet you sell them in your store. It's um, a strainer, and it looks like a giant scoop, like mm-hmm. a big spoon, a big scoop. Yep. And it's in this heavy, heavy-grade plastic. Yep. What's great is you dip it in a pot to scoop vegetables out in a, either you're boiling, steaming, or, or pasta or something. It doesn't lower the temperature of the water. Right. Because it's plastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, there definitely, there is a place for plastics, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, you know, they appear all over the place. Um, I find that in the kitchen, some of the things that are marketed as being, you know, a lot of the stuff that's made out of silicone is not an improvement on the things that weren't made of silicone. They're just another thing you can make out of silicone yeah, to replace, you know, muffin, muffin tin, muffin cups, things like that. You know, it's great that the silicone is nonstick. You know, I've never had a problem with putting a little butter in my muffin Yeah, tin. I've never used one of those silicone muffin bakers, but, I, you know, I've been tempted. They're fine, yeah. but they are going to do the same job as far as I'm concerned as yeah. a tin one. Okay, so in your collection, what is one of the most unusual objects you ever came across? So I would say there's an object that I often show to people when I talk about vintage kitchenware because I think it's a fun one to ask people to try and figure out what it is. Um, so I'm going to hand it to you, and you can try and figure out what it is. All right, I'm uh, going to describe this to you, folks. It looks like a pair of scissors. Yep. However... On the, <laughs> I don't know. On the end of the scissors, one end is an open loop, an oval, an oblong, and the other end of the scissor is like a scoop, like a teaspoon, a deep teaspoon. So you squeeze it together, and the teaspoon meets the loop, and 
I don't know, would form a, you'd take some dough and it would form a little ball or something? What? I'm, I'm sure it would do that. This is an object that did take a lot of work to research and figure out what it was. I bought it uh, in a drawer full of antique kitchen tools at an estate sale and assumed that it was kitchen related because it was with other kitchen items, but I had no proof of that for a couple of years until I was able to find actually the patent information. It very lightly inside, is there a patent inside in the teaspoon end of it, it has oh, a patent there's a little date, bit of writing. but it doesn't have the actual number, and so I had to look through every patent that contained that date and what date are to we try and about figure here? out uh, see, I actually I have a copy of the patent I can't, I can't really see it. It's so... Old it was warm. patented in uh, January 11th of 1901. Okay. And so I finally, after looking at patents for all kinds of things totally unrelated, came across, and it is in fact kitchen related, it is a pineapple eye snip. Oh. And it is made for you jab the spoon end into the, into into the, the pineapple, pineapple after you've cut the sides off and you can snip out the eyes of the pineapple. Oh, how wonderful. I mean, <laughs> totally. <laughs> what... <laughs> Yeah. Esoteric. I mean, yeah. one item that, yeah, you'd really have to dig in the drawer to find that one out. Right. But how unbelievable they made an object just for yeah, that. Yeah, just for doing that. So that, wow. to me, is a, I mean, wow. it's a fascinating object, and it's, it's a fun one to, to show to people because they often can't figure out what it could Indeed possibly be Indeed it for. is. Well, you know, there are so many wonderful objects like this. I, and I'm sure some of the listeners out there, if any of them are collectors or have, you know, gone to the Brooklyn Flea or, or any, you know, antique sale or, or tag sale might have picked up a few interesting items that and if you out there you don't know what it is you literally you bought it because it was really intriguing but you have no idea what it was used for take a picture of it um, with your phone you know email it to us at info at heritageradionetwork.com and I'll pass it along to Harry, and I'll Great. bet you can get an answer from Harry. Right. Do you display your collection anywhere, Harry? Or is this- I have some of it on display at the store, um, the Brooklyn Kitchen and the Meat Hook. Um, we're located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg. Uh, you can find out more. That's right. I forgot to mention you were attached with the, the Meat Hook yeah, as well. Yeah, the Meat yeah. Hook is a butcher shop that's inside of our space. Um, we also have a cooking school as well. The classes, uh, you offer really interesting classes, and, and many of them have some nice historical perspective on yeah, them as well. Yeah, we do pig butchering class, things Pickling like that. Pickling and Pickling canning. And canning, and canning. And yeah. yep. Um, more information about that stuff is available at thebrooklynkitchen.com. But the, some of the, the collection is on display. I'm in the process of sort of figuring out where best to display it in the store and mm-hmm. sort of how to properly display a lot of the items. Well, I just I think it's it's a fun guessing game when you go and you see these objects and, and think you can figure them out and then end up being totally wrong, like the lemon squeezer <laughs> being a meat press. Right. <laughs> well, it's it was really very interesting, and I thank you so much for sharing and bringing all these objects for, sure. for me to gaze upon and, and um, play with. And I thank you listeners for listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and I'd like to thank our executive producer, Jack Inslee. Please join us again. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Check out a small clip from The Food Scene, hosted by Michael Harlan Turkel, a show where food and art intersect. I think most recently you had a chocolate waterfall that had five tons 
uh, of chocolate flowing, <laughs> and you'd put on what a protective suit, walk through a waterfall, yeah. make your own chocolates within this kind of contained environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and most recently, a rabbit cafe. Yep. Can you explain that one to me a little bit? Well, I mean, and this also slightly comes from jellies as well, because in England, everyone has these uh, rabbit jelly molds. It's the most popular mold. Everyone goes, oh, I had rabbit jellies <laughs> yeah. as a kid. And we've always been utterly bewildered by it. Why, why rabbit jellies? The only way to get to the bottom of it was to get a whole herd of rabbits, open a cafe with them, and have people touch rabbits and eat. Yeah. Um, so it kind of has resonance with uh, one, of, one of our favourite cookbooks, which we think an awful lot of uh, you know, modern chefs have, have as their dark secret under their pillow, <laughs> um, which is the future. Want to hear more? Well, tune into the food scene live every week, Tuesdays at 3 p.m., or you can find all the archive shows on our website or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Thanks for listening.